Right, so obviously a very busy week in review for us here at Fitz News. And as we get started, the studio has been invaded by a couple of my urchins, two of my urchins, in fact, <laughs> four-year-old Otto, who's checking himself out in the monitor, and 16-month-old oh, Maddie. That's right. Daddy is on the TikTok. And they're grabbing the mics now, so this could go bad real quick. But anyway, um, a huge week here at Fitz News. We've got some major updates on the Rockstar Cheer saga up in Greenville, South Carolina, as well as the Murdoch murders. Yeah, that's right, guys. Absolutely. We're also going to go through some fun at the University of South Carolina, and we've got some political stories that we covered this week related to the South Carolina governor's race. I know, guys. It's exciting. I want you to stay tuned for all of that and more on Fitz and New- Fitz This Week in Review. But, Otto, you got anything to say to everybody? Something weird is going on with Maddie. We will dig into that too. Maddie, your response to that? Yeah. He has no comment, people. No comment from Matthias on the allegations. <laughs> Stay tuned for much more of the Week in Review. And thanks to my boys for stopping by the office and saying, hey, say goodbye, guys. Bye. Say bye, Maddie. Bye, Maddie. <laughs> All right, so we booted the urchins from the studio. Thankfully, no lasting damage was done. They were climbing on this mic here for a little bit. So hopefully uh, hopefully everyone can still hear my mellifluosity, even after the kids were jungle gymming on the set here. But it was interesting. We were having a discussion before we filmed this week in review about whether or not we should lead with the kids in here. Because the kids came to visit me at work today, as they often do. And they love to jungle gym all over the office. And so we filmed a little segment with them for the intro, but I started thinking about it because we're leading this week where we left off last week with the lead story from last week, the Rockstar Cheer scandal. And I was mulling this over with Dylan Nolan, our producer, our director of special projects here, about whether or not we should open a segment like this with giggling kids. And the more I thought about it, I I said, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, let me tell you why. I'm a lot of things. I'm a mogul of media, if you will. I'm a operative. I'm a whatever you want to call it, influencer. I don't know, whatever. But above all those things, above all those things, I'm a dad, a husband. I've got seven kids, five boys, two girls. And when you read about stories like Rockstar Cheer, if you don't, stop and think about your role as a parent, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. And there's something wrong with a lot of the parents that were associated with this story, particularly parents by the name of Scott Foster. And to some extent, we're told his wife, Kathy Foster, we'll talk about her in a moment. But as we get into this story, that's a perspective I think is going to be important. But I'm not the only parent that's been covering this story at Fitz News. And I want to talk for a minute about somebody who has done more work on the Rockstar Cheer Saga over the last two weeks than anybody else in the country, and that is Jen Wood, our researcher. Now, Jen, a lot of our Murdoch murders audience knows Jen very well from the work that she's done on that case. Incredible research. And not just research. uh, Jen Wood has actually taken a a more visible role in our coverage, uh, for which I'm incredibly grateful. But Jen isn't just one of the best researchers in this country, but she's also a cheer mom. This story has hit her on a very personal level. 
And so not only does she know that industry backwards and forwards from the ground up, but she now knows it from the top down. And the work that she's been doing over the last few weeks, the last two weeks with survivors of this story, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And again, I want to put this up, research at Fitz News. That's a way to get directly in touch with Jen Wood. Uh, if you are a survivor of Rockstar, not just Rockstar, any cheer gym across the country, not just here in South Carolina, because one of the things we learned this week was that this Rockstar cheer scandal is bigger than anything we imagined when we first started covering it two Mondays ago. So having addressed that point of personal privilege, let's get into the news. And it was a big news week on the Rockstar cheer Scandal. We saw a lot of reaction for the first time from some of these official entities, institutions within the cheerleading industry in the United States. I'm talking about USASF, the U.S. All-Star Federation. Prior to these allegations, everyone assumed this was a nonprofit, noble-minded, in the spirit of competition, a group devoted to maintaining the integrity of this this sport and the safety of the people participating in it. What we found out, however, is this a front. It's a front for the for-profit entity, Varsity, and its various corporate affiliations who are at the heart of this scandal. And that's one of the things I wanted to touch on as we look at the big news. What I believe was the big news this week was the lawsuit filed in federal court by attorneys with the Strom Law Firm here in Columbia, South Carolina, my hometown. And this suit was a bombshell, people. It was a bombshell because not only did it reveal, well, obviously what we knew about the allegations involving Rockstar, but it put those allegations in a context that so many people from across the country, I'm talking about people all the way in California, folks in New York, Midwest, Chicago, we've heard from people all over the country about this entity varsity. And I wanted to read one of the quotes here from this lawsuit. And this was from, uh, it's from the lawsuit. This isn't from any one of the lawyers. This is actually a quote from the actual pleading that was submitted in U.S. District Court in Greenville, South Carolina, earlier this week. It says the defendants in the Rockstar Cheer case participated in, I quote, a scheme to anoint specific coaches and disregard safety protocols, part of a, quote, elaborate plan to create a pipeline of young athletes, each of whom represented a significant stream of revenue worth billions of dollars. Now, that's financial gain. Okay, that's, that's all well and good. We're companies in business to make money. And you don't sell a company to Bain Capital, Mitt Romney's, the firm Mitt Romney founded. You don't sell it a company to Bain Capital for $2.5 billion four years ago, unless you made a lot of money, which Varsity has made a lot of money. But there's something else here. That pipeline was intended not just to make a profit, which again, you can argue, fine. That's what we're here for. There was something more insidious at work. And I want to read the next line of the lawsuit. The co-defendants, according to the lawsuit quote, created, organized, and propagated a system of young athlete abuse against innocent victims. So this wasn't about money. 
or at least it wasn't just about money. It was about creating an atmosphere where young, impressionable, underage, young girls, young boys were separated from their parents and were placed in direct proximity to predators. And if the reports we are hearing from across the country are true, we are talking about dozens of predators and potentially hundreds of victims. Again, it's, it's hard to even fathom the magnitude of this case, which until last Monday, no one had heard of. And I want to take us back briefly to last Monday, August 22nd, up in Paris Mountain, South Carolina, just north of Greenville State Park. It's beautiful up there. Around 12.30 p.m. on that day, Scott Foster, the founder and the owner of Rockstar Cheer, committed suicide via self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And at the time of his death, as Fitz News exclusively reported the very next day, he was the focus of a multi-jurisdictional investigation, criminal probe. That investigation is ongoing, by the way. In fact, on the day of his death, federal agents seized multiple electronic devices in connection with that ongoing investigation. That's another story we broke related to this ongoing unspooling saga. So where does it go from here? Well, Homeland Security Investigations, which is the federal agency leading that criminal inquiry, is continuing its work. And again, from what we are told, this is not just a South Carolina-specific investigation. This is a nationwide probe. And it's going to make what happened at Michigan State, it's going to dwarf that, people. Mark my words. It's going to dwarf it. And I want to cut real quick because we've got a, I wanted to read a quote here from Bakari Sellers, who was one of the attorneys in the case. And on the filing of the lawsuit, Sellers talked about these corporate defendants, and I'm talking about Rockstar. I'm talking about USASF. I'm talking about Varsity and the corporate owners. According to Bakari Sellers, these co-defendants created a, quote, factory of abuse designed specifically to generate two things, a constant supply of underage victims for Scott Foster and his fellow predators and a billion-dollar revenue stream to these corporate defendants. We attended the press conference up in Greenville earlier this week, and now I want to cut real quick to an excerpt from that press conference I want to let you hear from, directly from, Attorney Sellers on this story. Um, we have come together uh, in what has uh, become one of the most devastating and tragic uh, occurrences of institutional failure and sexual abuse that we've seen um, in line with the likes of uh, Michigan State, uh, USA Gymnastics, and many other national cases that you hear about. The way this is going to work this morning is uh, we are going to allow Mr. Bannister to come up and speak first. Uh, followed by um, uh, Jessica, followed by Allie, and then I will close. We will take any questions that you all have. 
one of the things that we are doing right now is protecting uh, the names of our uh, survivors. Uh, we don't call them victims, we call them survivors. And I want to give a special shout out to um, Fitz News, um, who I believe is here as well, uh, for covering this from the very beginning. This has been a story that's been bubbling up uh, in this community for a very long period of time. But I'll tell you, we have victims that go as far west as San Diego, California, uh, that uh, some are nearly 40 years old, some is, as young as is still minors today. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over to Mr. Bannister, and we'll go in that order. All right, so that was Bakari Sellers, one of the Strom Law attorneys at the press conference in Greenville earlier this week. And once again, I want to remind everybody who's watching this, uh, this news outlet stands ready to tell the stories of those who have survived this ordeal when they're ready, if they're ready. We do things a bit differently here, folks. We're not a ambush, gotcha, get the tears kind of news outlet. We like to bring people in let them feel comfortable about how they're going to tell the story. Because, again, it is not our story to tell. That's why we have not named any of the victims slash survivors here. We're going to let them do that on their own terms. But once again, if you know anyone who's been impacted by this scandal, or if you yourself were impacted, please reach out again to Jen Wood, research at Fitz News. As I said earlier, Jen is it not only best researcher in this country, she's a cheer mom who knows, again, how this industry works. Perfect person to lead this. So please reach out to her. And I also want to let you know that as Fitz News continues to cover this saga and provide our audience with the very latest news on the Rockstar Cheer scandal, I want you to be on the lookout for a new offering very soon from our news outlet that's going to go into even deeper detail on this story. But for now, to everyone who's been impacted by this saga, I personally want to let you know that we are committed to telling the story the right way and to holding everyone who was involved, everyone who abused kids, who put kids in these positions. As a dad, I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to hold them accountable. All right, so while the Rockstar Cheer scandal was dominating headlines across South Carolina and the rest of the country this week, with the mainstream media picking up on that story for the first time, it was a huge week of news in the Murdoch murders, crime and corruption saga. It began with an incredibly contentious hearing down in Walterboro, South Carolina, as the battle over alleged leaks and a failure on the part of the state to provide evidence to the defense attorneys boiled over at this hearing down in Walterboro. It was a very contentious exchange. Dick Harputlian, the lead defense attorney for accused killer Alec Murdoch, <laughs> I think he threw a pen across the table at one point. Dylan got a good clip of that while we were down there in Walterboro. But interrupting, interjecting, just a very hostile back and forth. Now, Harputlin took a lot of grief for his performance. However, there are those who defended him saying they would be mad too if the state had not provided the evidence that they were supposed to provide back on August 15. Harputlin's argument was that two weeks later, he hadn't gotten any of the evidence in the case. And some would argue that he had a point there. Now, as this hearing ramped up, there were several interesting moments that I want to touch on real quick. And the big one was the leak allegations. In a filing that he submitted just an hour before the hearing, Harputlian chronicled what he alleged are a list of leaks from prosecutorial and law enforcement sources, mostly prosecutorial, according to Harputlian, to this news outlet. 
He cited multiple articles published on Fitznews, which he alleges are the product of improper leaks from sources close to the investigation. Now, again, I find that pretty rich from a guy who has kept the state newspaper in business with leaks over the last few months. And again, no, no disrespect there. I get it. There's enough clicks for everybody on this story, people. But Harpootlian's leak challenge specifically targeted the Office of South Carolina Attorney General. And during the hearing, the lead prosecutor on this case, Creighton Waters, stood up and acknowledged a leak from his office. Now, Waters did not go into detail. Obviously, this news outlet is not going to say anything about our sources. But it was an interesting moment as Harpootlian attempted to call a sled agent to the stand during that hearing, Ryan Neal. Uh, and there was a bunch of speculation online uh, on these uh, different platforms, Reddit, Twitter, um, the TikTok, which, by the way, I'm on the TikTok now. I freaking love the TikTok. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm on it. But anyway, tons of speculation about what Harpootlin was looking for in attempting to call that particular witness to the stand. Again, no idea. We'll have to see how that develops. But the judge in the case issued a very simple ruling. He compelled the state to hand over the evidence and basically told Harpootlin he was not going to indulge him in his hissy fit over the leaks. So a pretty down-the-middle ruling from Circuit Court Judge Clifton Newman as it related to that hearing on Monday. And eventually, this week, we are told Harpootlian and his fellow defense attorney, Jim Griffin, did in fact receive an evidence download from the state, which they were in the process of reviewing. Now, we have heard from some of our sources that there were some complaints from the defense attorneys about exactly how much evidence was provided to them. And we're going to probably hear more about that next week as this evidence battle escalates. Again, this is a key battle as we look forward to this potential trial, perhaps as soon as January of next year. So the battle over evidence, what gets in, what may have been leaked ahead of time when it shouldn't have, it's going to be very important. Now, there's another part of the hearing that leads into the second big Murdoch news this week. During the hearing, Harpootlian mocked the state, mocked the investigators on this case, basically saying, your investigation, you claim it's still ongoing. Here we are 13 months removed, or 14 months now removed from the killings. After you charged him, you're still investigating? You need more evidence? Let's talk about that evidence. What were they looking at? Well, just one day after this hearing, 18 sled vehicles, we're told, descended on a bridge just south of Varnville, South Carolina. What were they looking for? We don't know, but there were dive teams in the water. There were multiple sled agents and waders with metal detectors searching in the water. There were also sled teams searching in the woods alongside this, uh, this river, the Coosawatchee River down there in Hampton County, South Carolina. Now, what did the search turn up? We don't know. SLED has refused to comment on what they were looking for or whether they found anything. Our local sources indicate that the search came up empty. And we have received word from some law enforcement sources which would indicate that, that that's an accurate assessment of what happened. But clearly a massive search, which was tied directly, we are told, to the Murdoch investigation, and in particular, the investigation of those double homicides which took place on June 7, 2021, at Mazelle, the Murdoch family hunting property. Now, Alec Murdoch, as our audience is well aware, stands accused of the murders of his wife, 
52-year-old Maggie Murdoch, of his younger son, 22-year-old Paul Murdoch, at Mazelle on June 7 of last year. He has pleaded not guilty, and we are now in that ramp up to the murder trial. And as that case continues to move forward, I wanted to point something out. I want to point something out. There's been a lot of acrimony and a lot of contentiousness between media outlets uh, as this story has progressed. And I just want to let everybody who's covering the Murdoch saga know, Fitz News is we've had a killer week. We've had a killer month on Murdoch coverage. We've broken a ton of news related to that. In fact, just today, just today, if you read our Saturday morning coverage, you will see an expansive piece detailing the latest federal allegations against Russell Lafitte who is the banker at Palmetto State Bank, who was mixed up with Alec Murdoch's financial crimes. He's the alleged crimes. He's the first person Charles charged federally in connection with this case. But we've broken a ton of news on this story. But here's the thing. And I said this before. There are enough clicks for everybody, people. Why do we have to fight about stuff? Why do we have to argue about credit? And I tweeted a couple months ago that this news outlet was going to get out of the business of worrying about that stuff. And I want to reiterate that now. Sure, if we break a story, we'll say, yeah, we exclusively reported on it. But there were several other reporters over the last few weeks that have broken Murdoch-related items. I'm talking about John Monk from the Columbia State newspaper. And sure enough, maybe he got the tip from his buddy Harpoon, and that's fine. Avery Wilkes from the Charleston Post and Courier broke a big story. And again, last month, a huge story groundbreaking story on the civil suit side from Valerie Borline of the Wall Street Journal, a wonderful report that really validated a lot of the reporting that Fitz News has been doing. There are enough clicks for all of us people. And if we can all start focusing more on covering this thing and less worrying about who's getting the credit for covering it, I think the closer we're going to get to justice. But again, another big week in this story on multiple fronts. And I want you to continue to count on Fitz News to not only bring you the latest breaking news of the Murdoch saga, but analysis of it. And also, again, this is, as I said during the Rockstar Cheer segment on this show, we are not just here to bring you the news. I live in this state. I've lived here my entire life. As I said in the intro to this show, I'm raising seven kids here. And I am not going to raise them in a state where the justice system is this bent out of shape and this broken and this willing to accommodate theft from poor people by rich, powerful people who then turn around and get in all these other shenanigans with blood on their hands all over the low country. And if you think the Murdochs are unique to the South Carolina experience, folks, mm-mm. Mm-mm. And that's why we're here. Not just to report those stories, but again, accountability for those who break the law. All right, so we also have some political news to cover this week here in South Carolina, where the gubernatorial election between Incumbent Republican Henry McMaster and Democrat Joe Cunningham has started to heat up a bit. There were a couple of big developments in that race this week, and I want to start with the first one. Some polling was released on Monday related to that race, and what it found was basically what everyone kind of already knew. Henry McMaster, the GOP governor who got this position because he was a big buddy with U.S. President Donald Trump, He's been Trump's boy for a long time. The Foghorn Governor, Henry McMaster, son of the old South, glad-handing, guffawing, caricaturing, pappy old Daniel loving. <laughs> Needless to say, he's a, he's a good old boy, right? Good old boy. In fact, that guy's got the 1990 pocket squares, people. Literally the four-pointed pocket square from 1990. Anyway, 
you would think somebody like that might, I don't know, have some trouble with the electorate in 2022, but we are again in South Carolina, the land that time at times forgot. So Governor Henry McMaster enjoys an eight-point lead over the Democrat in this race, Joe Cunningham, according to the latest polling. Uh, now, McMaster, later in the week, introduced an advertisement, his first political advertisement of this campaign. And you would think for a minute, and I thought, if you're up by eight percentage points in this race against a Democrat in South Carolina, why do you need to go on the attack? Because here's, here's a little fact. A Democrat hasn't won a statewide race in South Carolina since 2006, people. And that was a superintendent of education race, and they won by literally 400 votes. And that guy's not even in the Democratic Party anymore, literally has left the party. No Democrat has won a statewide top-of-the-ticket race since 1998. So again, this is not a race that Republicans are sweating. This is not a race Republicans should be sweating. So why is the governor of South Carolina launching an attack ad? Well, we're going to talk about that, but first... I wanted to let you watch the ad because something very interesting happened with this advertisement. We're going to cut to it real quick. Let's watch this ad. The first, the first television ad of the 2020 campaign from Henry McMaster. Meet Joe Cunningham. Joe drinks beer in Congress. Joe blows a foghorn in congressional hearings. Joe wants to be internet famous. Joe loves weed and voted against the police. Joe voted 88% with Pelosi, so Joe lost his seat in Congress. Now he wants to be governor. No thanks, Joe, but we'll call if we have a frat party. I'm Joe Cunningham, and I approve this message. All right, so here's the thing. What McMaster forgot to point out was that he's not the only frat boy, right? Cunningham's not the only frat boy in this race. McMaster, as I mentioned earlier, son of the South, and so there were some digital tweets that came out shortly after the Cunningham ad, which, yes, you can see here, highlighted. Yeah, that would be the Confederate flag. That would be the Kappa Alpha fraternity. Again, this is the fraternity which held the old South Ball where folks dressed up in Confederate uniforms and some of them donned the blackface. Uh, and in fact, we explored this back in 2019 during the Virginia blackface scandal where uh, two Democratic politicians in Virginia uh, were uh, enmeshed and embroiled in scandal related to their wearing a blackface back when they were in college. So an interesting turn of events there. But McMaster apparently thought better of this ad. Uh, and according to the Cunningham campaign, actually took it off the air. And so something I've never seen happen before. Cunningham tweets the ad, literally the attack ad against him, and puts his own disclaimer at the end of it literally pumping out the attack ad against him with his own approval, saying he approves the message. Again, South Carolina politics, people, never know what to expect. But will any of this impact the, the race? Will any of this lead to a Democrat winning a statewide election for the first time since 1998? Doubtful. Doubtful. This is still, again, a Republican-heavy state. Far too many hardcore evangelical voters in the upstate. They're going to swing this race to McMaster no matter what happens with these little frat boy back and forth. But my hope moving forward, as fun as this stuff is to cover, and again, I was never in a frat. I was never a frat boy. Band played some frat parties, but I was never in a frat. But my hope is that we can, at some point, elevate this debate beyond who does the best keg stand, right? Or who, or, or who has the best guffaw, right? Because again, South Carolina's got some problems. We've got violent crime out of control. 
We've got some of the worst government-run schools in America. We've got one of the lowest labor participation rates in the country. But if this is the kind of stuff the two people running for governor want to talk about, want to focus on, I guess we're getting the politicians we deserve, people. We're getting the politicians we deserve. But anyway, count on Fist News to continue to hold both of these campaigns accountable and count on us to hopefully encourage them to have a little more mature debate as this race progresses. All right, so one of the other political stories we covered this week involves the South Carolina lieutenant governor's race. And here I want to point out that beginning in 2018, candidates for governor of South Carolina have been selecting their own running mates. Before that, these lieutenant governors were elected independently, but the state constitution was changed ahead of the 2018 election. And since then, candidates for governor have been uh, allowed to choose their running mates. Now, Democratic gubernatorial nominee Joe Cunningham made an interesting choice for his running mate. Now, again, Cunningham is the nominee of a party uh, which is 60% black in South Carolina. 60% of Democratic primary voters are black. So it was expected, uh, particularly after a very contentious primary race in which Cunningham alienated a lot of black voters uh, in his campaign against State Senator Mia McLeod, a lot of folks expected that he would choose a black running mate. He did not. Now, the candidate he chose is 52-year-old Tally Casey, and on paper— on paper, Casey's a very good candidate. She's a former fighter pilot, although we're going to get into some of that here in the next couple of weeks, some questions about that record. But uh, on paper, anyway, a former F-16 fighter pilot. She's also the managing partner of one of the largest law firms in South Carolina, so very accomplished. Uh, she's got three black belts. And again, I pointed out recently, I don't know why you need more than one black belt, but anyway, she's got three of them. So a uh, very accomplished woman. But in her rollout, Casey... Cunningham and Casey's new husband all went into this family value stick. And I don't know if, if it was because this press conference was held in Greenville, South Carolina, where, you know, the evangelicals are very prominent. Uh, and we talked about that in the last segment. Maybe they're trying to cut into that uh, Republican diehard country up there, but they really hammered away at this family values angle, which is why it's ironic to me that less than a month later, this news outlet found ourselves in a Richland County courtroom to cover a hearing about sealing Tally Casey's family court records, some of which I have right here, by the way. It's in the whole file. The whole file is as big as a bathtub, but I've got some of the files right here. And as I previously reported, these files contain some allegations of very sensitive uh, affairs and stuff like that, which I'm not going to get into because, again, I don't, I don't really care about affairs. Um, if you're running for office and, you know, whatever, that's really none of my business unless you're wasting tax money or abusing your office or, or the affair happened in connection with some kind of crime. I, don't, I, re I really don't care if you sleep around. Okay, that's your own business. But there were some other allegations in this file involving drug use. And again, if you follow Fitz News on Twitter, I, uh, from time to time over the last couple of weeks, have been tweeting some cactus pictures that people don't seem to understand. Um but if you, if you have experimented with various um, illicit substances, as I have, then you probably understand what the cactus pictures mean. It's a reference to a particular hallucinogenic, which is alleged to be a favorite of the lieutenant gubernatorial nominee. Now, again, these are allegations contained in a custody battle. And I can understand how some of the minor children involved in this shouldn't be dragged through the mud. And again, this news outlet has never named those children. They were named, however, 
by the politicians and political spouses at the press conference announcing Tally Casey. So here's my question. If you're going to go out and name your kids on a stage in front of a bank of television cameras, why are you mad at me for reporting on allegations they made in a family court case? You named them, not me. Not me. But anyway, this case earlier this week was sealed by a judge in Richland County, South Carolina. And that's where this becomes a problem. Because now, to me anyway, this story is not about affair allegations. It's not about licking crazy cacti and getting a little freaky. Now this case is about public transparency and a fundamental inequity between those who have power and those who don't. Those who have money and those who don't. Those who have connections and those who don't. Because if you got power and you got money and you got connections, guess what? You can get a judge to issue a ruling like this, which I'm holding up for those of you listening, which says, and I quote, the public interest will be served in the sealing of these private matters. Well, folks, I'm sorry, but the public interest is not served by hiding allegations of drug manufacture and use by a candidate for public office. Because that's something I think people should have a right to make a decision about. Now, it doesn't bother me because, again, I've done every drug under the sun, folks, including that crazy cactus, that San Pedro people. Mm. But here's the thing. That should be up to the voters to decide. And Casey's attorneys and the judge, in this case, have taken that away. Unfairness that all of the attorneys, let me, let me back it up. That's not fair. I want to be fair to the attorneys in this case. All the attorneys consented to the sealing this file. But here's the problem. If we mess up, you or I, we don't get this treatment. Our dirty laundry is out there for everybody to see. Our friends and neighbors can download that file from the county courthouse and come wave it in our face and make fun of us. Oh, we saw what you did with that cucumber or we saw what you did with that. Whatever, and I don't do anything with cucumbers, I don't think. But seriously, we don't get the benefit that Tally Casey gets. Sometimes we do, because sometimes these cases involve very sensitive allegations involving minors. But that's not what this is about. And Tally Casey is out there claiming that she's doing this to protect her family. Folks, that is grade A, 100% bull. She is doing this to protect her political aspirations. She is doing this to protect Joe Cunningham's campaign. That's it. So don't insult the voters of the state by claiming you're doing this to protect your kids. No, no, no. You paraded your kids naming them by name on the stage up in Greenville, South Carolina, and now having touted yourself as a family values candidate, you want to keep the values of your family under lock and key. Well, and by the way, sealing the files isn't the only thing this judge did. There's going to be another hearing this coming week about whether or not to invoke a protective order, which would gag all the attorneys from even talking about this case. So not only has Tally Casey succeeded in sealing her dirty laundry, but she's now getting an order, or going to get an order, likely, which will prevent any of the attorneys in this case from even talking about it. <laughs> Again, what's that expression? Rules for thee, not for me. 
That's Tally Casey's world, people. And I guess it ain't our world. We don't get this kind of treatment. Why should she? Once again, at Fitz News, we're going to exercise discretion in reporting on sexual allegations, on affairs, on minor children. Certainly, we don't want to put people who don't deserve to be dragged through the mud in the mud. But ask yourself who really put these kids in that position, number one. And then ask yourself, again, whether or not that lack of judgment on the part of Tally Casey is something that the taxpayers should be forced to cover through the ceiling of her file. Again, it's about transparency, people. And this news outlet will always fight to keep public records in public view. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's editions of the Weekend Review. Before we go, though, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, you can see in the background I've got my University of South Carolina Gamecock jersey with my name on it. That means I'm ready for the season opener today against Georgia State University. So by the end of the day, we could have some Gamecock fans in some dire straits if we lose to them Panthers from Georgia State. But anyway, it was a crazy week for for Gamecock football, for Gamecock athletics, because the school went through multiple iterations of nicknames for its live rooster mascot. We covered this issue extensively because, folks, apparently we didn't have anything else to do this week, right? Rockstar cheer, Murdoch murders, political drama. Apparently we didn't have anything else to cover, so the University of South Carolina decided to make a bunch of news for us by naming, then renaming, then re-renaming its barnyard rooster mascot, Originally named Sir Big Spur, briefly named The General, until this news outlet published a story detailing what that entailed, which was a slave bounty by the person who they named the bird after. Anyway, long story. You can read that on our news outlet. But they ended up going back to Sir Big Spur. But throughout this entire drama in which political correctness, maybe for once got something right, I don't know. Throughout this whole drama, the school did not seize upon the right name. And the right name for the bird, folks, you know it, Cock Commander. Say it with me. You want to say it, Cock Commander. Now, what's, what's wrong with that? Why doesn't the school want to say that? Seriously, we chant every Saturday, 82,000 people stand up and chant, let's go cocks. But we can't call the bird Cock Commander? I don't get it. You think, are people going to forget that the name of the school is Game Cocks? I mean, the word has cocks in it. I'm sorry, it does. I feel like Vince Vaughn from Wedding Cock crashed. I'm a coxman. Can't help it. <laughs> anyway, I maintain that all this mascot drama will be resolved very simply if the school can just win football games. Because once again, what the name of the chicken don't matter as long as it isn't fried chicken, people. Because fried chicken is what it's been for the last few years. Again, second-year coach Shane Beamer got a good squad this year. Did better than expected last year. He has silenced his critics, but as I've repeatedly pointed out, he has yet to prove them wrong. He starts that today against Georgia State, so be sure to check it out. 7.30 p.m., ESPN, SEC Network Plus, South Carolina versus Georgia State as the 2022 South Carolina football season kicks off. I want to thank everybody once again for joining us here on the Week in Review. Keep tuned to Fitz News for all the latest on the Rockstar Cheer scandal on the Murdoch Murders Crime and Corruption Saga, and all the breaking South Carolina political news and events.